0: Uh, sort of the uh, important new practices in uh, contemporary Buddhist um, teaching. So, um, just to start out, to lay some foundations, um, we are very aware of the communication that we do as human beings in language. Uh, we acquire language roughly around the time that we're two years old, and um, the left hemisphere of the brain is dedicated to it. And we're very aware of uh, the meaning of when we're talking to people. We're aware of the what we're, you know, the ideas we're trying to put into words, the words we choose, and then hearing the words that they say and trying to decipher their meaning. And so that's where a lot of of our conscious awareness goes into during interactions, but um, that's only one half of the communicative brain. There's actually an entire different level of communication that's going on all the time, one that we're often completely unaware of, and um, that's the emotional signaling that we do. It's completely under the domain of the right hemisphere, and... uh, in most people's brains, and it's done through body language, facial expressions, tone of voice, um, and other subtle gestures. It's not um, symbolic like words. It's actual movements that convey our internal state, and this is really, really important to human beings because the conveying or signaling of what our internal emotional state is and having it be read at first by a caretaker, our parents when we're very young, and then throughout the course of life being able to convey what we're feeling internally and having somebody understand it uh, is one of the most uh, important social cements, the things that bond us with others, the thing that allows us to feel that we are being taken care of and that our needs are being met. And um, the infant starts doing it very, very quickly, shortly after birth. So instead of the two, two and a half years it takes to really begin to acquire uh, language that can really convey meaning uh, with any ease, for the first two years, two and a half years, the way we are primarily communicating is via emotional signaling. And that's why the key point of anybody's life in terms of the development of their right hemisphere happens actually very early. It keeps on developing, but um, key uh, experiences happen very early in life which actually shape the way our right hemisphere regulates our emotions and expresses our emotions and integrates our emotions. If we're lucky, we have caretakers that are attentive, or what's known as attuned, which means they stay uh, making eye contact, they can read our emotions as infants, and they can uh, let us know that we are being read, understood, what we're signaling, whether it's fear or hunger or tiredness or anxiousness or I just shat my pants. I don't know what infants are conveying, but whatever uh, internal emotional states, it's very important for the caretakers to let them know. And so we look for a bunch of things to let us know from word go in life that we're being understood. And this doesn't ever stop. When we look at human development, the same exact qualities that we emotionally look for when we're one years old from other people, we continue to look for when we're 91. So it's not like the development of language where it keeps on becoming refined. Um, We're looking for emotionally witnessing, which is the sense that somebody is observing us and can take care of us. Um, idealizing means that we're looking for somebody who presents attributes that we can aspire to, people that are, seem to be calm, stable, uh, <coughs> make wise decisions, are in control of the environment around them. So we need something to aspire to. We need tolerance so that when we're expressing emotionally difficult feelings like anger, uh, uh, fear, sadness, that we can feel that these are permitted, that we don't feel shamed or that there's something wrong with these uh, emotions. And when we, don't, when we aren't received, when we're communicating these emotional states, we, over the course of life, begin to repress them. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. We're also looking for... Um, a sense of membership in a family or a group so that it's not just our endeavors and our feelings. We don't feel alone in the world. We feel like we're a part of something larger. But the most important thing we're looking for is what's known as mirroring or empathy. And that's what happens when somebody looks at us, gets what we're feeling, and not only feels it themselves because that's what humans can do. We can feel what other people are feeling by looking at them, but mirrors it back to us. You can empathize, for instance, when you watch a TV show and you see somebody going in a horror movie going down into the basement alone that's dark and there's a sound, even though that's something you would never do if you have any intelligence.
1: (laughs) You empathize with the... uh,
0: With the character, you feel the tightness, the bated breath, the, the tightness of the shoulders. You're literally, through your mirror neurons, empathizing, feeling what they're feeling. It's very important for a child to see that its emotions are being read and understood through empathy, because that's how we literally know for sure that we're connected, that we are a part, that we're being read, that we're being understood. It's interesting that people can be married for decades and think that they're in a normal marriage without any emotional intimacy in it. On the other hand, people can really be in very intimate relationships if they take the time to sit and really learn to feel and read the other person that they're in a sustained relationship with. It doesn't have to be romantically. It can be anyone. But the key is not simply somebody being there. It's somebody making eye contact, reading what we're feeling, the emotional state we're feeling, and be able to send it back to us. So if all goes well, then we smoothly integrate all of these different emotions because we know that they're okay. Our caretakers have said, it's okay, you're frightened, you're angry, you're upset, you're confused, you're sad, I see that, but I'm stable enough that I can be here and help you through it. Unfortunately, um, a lot of caretakers create what's known as insecure uh, environments where they reward us for certain emotions that they read, like certainty and happiness and creativity they love, but sometimes caretakers will, when we're signaling as infants or as children or as young adults, when we're signaling anger, for instance, there's a a sense of um, not being met. The parent may turn away, break connection. At worst, they'll even begin to scold or shame or literally push away the child for presenting emotions that the parent doesn't want to see. And in that case, people generally grow up and they experience emotional dysregulation, which means when these emotions arise, they feel there's something wrong and they want to get rid of it. And very often, in certain cases, people will turn to uh, addictions as a way to get rid of the emotions that they weren't allowed to present in childhood. So if our anger wasn't received very often, people be c- turn to opiates, which allows people to, c- to control their anger. If people feel empty and unmotivated and unmet when they're, uh, they're feeling sluggish, they were only rewarded for being up and active, but when they were tired and down, they were... Somewhat shunned by their parents, then very often those people turn out to be interested in consuming stimulants, so on and so forth. We look for the chemicals that make us relieve the states that our caretakers didn't allow us to present. So all this making any sense? You getting it? Oh, okay? And I'm sure none of you have experienced any of this. So, uh. so. Um, This is how we create our sense of self, by the way. The stuff that we like, that people reward us for, uh, we gravitate towards, we present. Robin Williams said in an interview that, uh, like many other uh, comedians, that the only time his parents were really attentive was when he was being funny. So guess why he graduated to being a comedian? You don't have to be a genius there. On the other hand, uh, very often in times when sometimes we don't even present behaviors or emotions that are even natural to us, we we create performative emotional states just to get love. This is called people-pleasing and uh, chasing success and accomplishments, and very often people will become extremely successful in life chasing a sense of I'm okay, love me, if when they grew up in environments that were withholding or completely um, emotionally barren. And, of course, the problem is, is that these behaviors were created just to perform and to get love. They're not authentic. And so later on in life, when receiving all the placards and awards for all the accomplishments, it feels really hollow because this wasn't something that was really authentic. It was a strategy to get love, but we never felt truly lovable for who we were spontaneously. So um, the three big strategies are uh, to get, to repair these, uh, t- these kind of uh, experiences are, um, the first is soothing, um, see if I have some examples there. Yeah, via chemicals, opiates, stuff like that. Any kind of addictive behaviors. Then there's substitute relationships. Sometimes people who don't feel empathized with or uh, have had any uh, real connection, perhaps their parent was narcissistic, they turn to sex as a way to get that feeling of being loved. Because during sex, what happens? Well, you make eye contact. Somebody touches you and they're reading your body. So we're looking for that feeling of being read emotionally through sex. The problem is is that sex in and of itself is largely at first performative. And when people go from stranger to strangers enacting these strategies for getting love, they're not really getting emotional mirrors. They're simply getting sex, which is great, don't get me wrong, but that's not answering what's really being met, being needed inside. Um, and finally, there's what I talked about, the approval seeking. So all of these strategies, um, in essence, don't really do very good for us. In fact, all these uh, repairing strategies make matters worse because what they do is they put a great strain on the structures that we use to get what little love or emotional connection that sometimes that we, we feel we have. For instance, if the only way we felt met when we were in childhood is by being certain and being in control and other emotional states like anger, sadness, fear, uh, frustration, giving up, if all of those were shunned, then it puts an enormous amount of stress on always being confident and under control. And no life can ever sustain that amount of uh, play-acting. Eventually, we'll break down. So the more we... Shun or don't incorporate emotions into our, our nuclear self, our sense of uh, what we're allowing, the more we're hiding or compartmentalizing because of early experience, um, the more stress we put on the, 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 the structures, the behaviors that we turn to all the time to get love, to get a feeling of I'm okay. Now, Fortunately, there's a lot of good news. The first is that the right hemisphere, um, the regions that are really in charge of allowing you to integrate your emotions, which means, uh, integrating means feeling something and being able to express it and mirror it rather than repressing it. Or B, Uh, when you feel something, have it be such a traumatic experience because it was shunned by caretakers early on that we push it down, push it down, and then it explodes out. You know, sometimes people, for instance, who are frightened of expressing anger or disappointment in relationships, they'll push it down, push it down, push it down, and then it becomes so great that, well, a little thing happens and then there's a burst. So, um, fortunately, though, the right hemisphere throughout the course of our lives can remold itself. The brain doesn't ever stop developing. It's a self-dynamic neuroplastic organ that continually can reshape itself. So if you're getting from other people in your life, in your adult mutual interactions, if you're finding and insisting on being emotionally read finding people who will give you permission to express your emotions, not just verbally, but entirely through the body, through crying, through just being upset, through your physicality. If they give you a safe space where they receive it, and they don't immediately go into the subtle rejecting strategies that can, circum- that can uh, shortcut it and make it stop. For instance trying to fix our emotions. If you, if you know somebody who you, who's a long-term friend, but whenever you talk about the fact you're sad, they say, well, you should just get a new job, that's not the solution. You're not being emotionally red. You're just having somebody trying to change your emotional states, and that won't make you feel uh, like you can incorporate and own those those key emotional conditions. You need somebody who will create a safe space, who will listen, who will permit, who will empathize. You'll be able to see in their eyes that they're reading sadness, anger, frustration, grief, and um, they'll mirror it back. And they'll, sh- it, when it's appropriate, they'll talk to you about their experiences. This is why the Buddha talked about, um, when he was asked, how important are our close spiritual friends? And Ananda asked him, is it true that it's half of the path? And the Buddha said, no, it's the entirety of the path. It's the foundation of the spiritual work, is making spiritual connections. And this is verified by all of the clinical research I sh- I've read, which is that if our entire spiritual practice is simply about meditating alone, we don't learn how to properly uh, express and integrate our emotions into our interconnected lives. We need to have wise, calm, receptive, caring, loving, accepting people in our lives to receive our emotional states. There's no substitute for it. I would love it, if we could all march into caves or whatever, I probably wouldn't love that. But uh, (laughs) it's interesting that uh, sometimes the, the practices that people can sometimes be the most wary of in Buddhist practice is the community building practices. And a lot of sanghas don't even really emphasize how important it is. But it's really foundational. Without it, we can't really be fully whole, um, open, and completely integrated people. We'll still be concealing and um, editing ourselves, compartmentalizing, um, overreacting. So the Buddha, when asked also, what kind of person should we look for in our lives? He said, our, a wise companion gives what is hard to give, Does, and by that he's meaning attention, does what is hard to do, and by that he means shows up for us, or she shows up for us, I'm sorry to genderize that, uh, wise companion, uh, gives what is hard to give, does what is hard to do, endures what is hard to endure, reveals experience when it's appropriate, yet keeps your secrets, When misfortune strikes, a wise companion doesn't abandon you, nor look down on you when you're down and out. A companion endowed with these qualities should be the foundation for us. So the Buddha is basically describing there what uh, clinical psychologists 2,500 years later exactly describe as ideal caretaking, which is somebody that creates a safe space where we can signal our emotional states, be read. Somebody will show up who won't judge or dismiss even when um, what we're expressing is difficult. Um, All of the key practices that we shoot for in uh, our practice, for instance, the Brahma Viharas, which are loving kindness, compassion appreciation, and a sense of balance, these are also very key in ideal caretaking of others. When we are loving and kind, we are creating a stable witnessing. We're receiving what people are sending. We're not judging, pushing away. When we're compassionate, we are empathetic. We are not just saying, oh, poor you, we are literally connecting with the sense of difficult emotions that are being expressed. When we are sympathetic, we're also allowing the entire repertoire or palette of emotions to be read and be acknowledged. We're not just uh, focusing on one. We're allowing people to be happy and joyous when we're not feeling it. And equanimity is the stability that even though we are empathizing with others, we're not ourselves being so uh, destabilized by the experience that we can't present a soothing alternative. So you want a friend who can empathize, but at the same time not be so, you know, pushed about that they, uh, they don't present a stable, ideal alternative. If you're angry, you want somebody who goes, yeah, I know how that feels. I know what that's like. But you don't want to have somebody that says,
1: yeah, let's go break some fucking legs here. Motherfucker,
0: let's go and break some fucking
1: legs.
0: I don't know where I can from, But anyway, uh, my growing up on the Lower East Side, no doubt. So uh, so we want to have... Uh, Mirroring, but we don't want to have destabilizing uh, mirroring that pushes us into a sort of overreactive state. So here comes the fun part for all you introverts. Get ready, take it loose. What I want you to do is find the person sitting closest to you and turn towards them. That's right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can
0: it can be don't know if you if, you're, if it's easier though if it's somebody you're seeing with and you know just or don't know it doesn't matter
1: <laughs> if <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> so if
0: does everybody if they meet up a group of three, that's fine. <coughs> She's leaving because she doesn't have a partner. They'll protest. They'll protest. I'm not being emotionally mad. Well hopefully she'll find uh, someone when she comes back. So um, so if you've have you all introduced yourselves? and everybody <laughs> All right, you're taking advantage now. So, the next uh, thing is, I'm going to just uh, suggest um, uh, something to reflect on. And then we need one person in each group to share what they're feeling. And then the other person just listen. And if you can, keep eye contact, or, but not in a creepy way. So <laughs> I've done this exercise for many years, and there's always one guy with a uh, psycho look. <laughs> So uh, no, it's fine. Whatever, wh- however you make, you know, you can present the sense of just taking in the emotion that the person is sharing. And then I will uh, at, after the end of a, a minute and a half, then I'll ring the bell. Then there'll be about 30 seconds, and then the next person will take their their turn to share on the subject. Okay. And uh, it's good not to just rattle off a list, but just, so, for instance, um, uh, if the, uh, w- the actual subject is going to be, what am I feeling right now? focusing not on thinking, but what are you feeling? So, do I feel anxious, tired? Do I feel stiff? Do I feel, so, but not a list. It would be like, I feel tired. I feel uncomfortable doing this. And to pause after each one to give the listener a chance just to hear it and to take it in. So is that clear? Everybody? Cool. Okay. So we need one person in each group to uh, raise their hand. Who's going to do it first? That's good. You don't have to show me. I just you shouldn't show. You. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to say it. no. You can't. Uh... <laughs> All right. So, what am I feeling right now? Take a moment to take a moment to bow and just thank the person who is listening and the person who's listening, thank the person who shared. And then we're gonna to go to the next person. Now for the, the next two and the, the last two, this subject is going to be, what things about myself do I normally not tell people or let people know?
1: <laughs> now,
0: don't worry about weird sexual fetishes and stuff like that. I know where your minds are going. No. Um... That's not what it's about. It's just, you know, there's always certain, even if we're not feeling them now, there's certain emotional states that we feel really uncomfortable with that when we experience them, we tend to run away. And you can, if you only have one or two, you can sort of talk a little bit about that. The group in the back that is four, you can just continue to use this as the times for each person to share. But uh, so you get the idea. Just what is it about ourselves that we don't generally feel comfortable letting people know. It can also be aspirational. What would we like to be more confident in letting people know about ourselves, but we still feel a little guarded about So let's sit with that. And then starting with the first person again. And now, for the very last chair, the person who went second, what experiences do we not often let other people know about feelings? Same subject. Thank your partner for being a witness. Mm-hmm. And then you can turn back. Turn the sun.